take the premillennial. What seems essentially, that what many of you believe, is that, well, the Lord's going to come back in a two-stage deal. Uh, one, to come back to the issue in his kingdom. But before that, there will be a rapture of bringing up those in God's church up to rise to meet him in the air before bad stuff really happens here. Um, and so that was kind of the, the thought uh, that was taught to me, uh, as well as many of us. Uh, and so what that left me with is that uh, I wasn't a, a follower of Jesus until I was in high school. Um, and so it gave me many opportunities to sit with the knowledge of what my parents believed and what the Bible was teaching. And it had a, a certain uh, terrifying effect on a middle schooler who, uh, like many in my generation, would come home and parents were gone working. And so I, uh, the latch, latch kid uh, coming home and thinking, okay, well, mom and dad said they were going to come home at 5.30, but it's now 6.30, and where's mom and dad? And where's my sister, for that matter? <laughs> and so here's the thought. Man, the Lord's come back, and I'm here on my own. Everyone in our family I know are believers. What am I going to do? And I don't remember how many times I thought that growing up uh, when mom and dad were never home when they said they'd be home. Uh, and so that's just kind of what happens uh, when you're raised up in a church uh, and all your families are, are believers and you, you're not really quite sure what all you believe, um, but you're thinking, no, if mom and dad aren't home, maybe the Lord's come back and I've missed out. Uh, and so uh, I want to go to the Bible uh, and uh, I won't be able to exhaust this because there's a lot of views, a lot of opinions, uh, interpretations of how to uh, translate or how to understand the Lord's return. But there are a few things that everyone is in agreement about uh, as they follow the Lord and understand what he teaches. And so I want to uh, make sure that we definitely hit those uh, aspects of, of the Lord's return. And so I want us to uh, read Second Peter chapter 3 and our focus is really going to be verses uh, 10 through 14, um, but I want to start with reading what is prior to that uh, in chapter 3. Uh, this is uh, Peter writing this to a, a group of believers that are dealing with false prophets, false teaching, uh, who basically see God's grace and his permission to say, well, you know what, we can do whatever we want, we can live sexually in a way we want to, it doesn't really matter, and so they're kind of interpreting Scripture based on what they want to do. And so Peter is uh, writing to these uh, and giving them some words of warning. And so in this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as God's church to recognize the authority of what we are, who we are, what we believe about this word of God. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of those, I'm both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord's Savior and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by word of God. And, by, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening? The coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You may be seated. So, as we study this, I'm going to look at first the nature of the day of the Lord, and then how this text brings out some objections to the day of the Lord, and the answers to them, as well as the effect of this day of the Lord concept. And so, as you look at this, uh, you notice the terminology, the day of the Lord. You see, in one point, the day of God, uh, or the day of the Lord. Uh, so what exactly does it mean that the Lord has a day, that he's got something uh, that we're working toward? Well, if I had said to you, uh, this is your day, what comes to your mind? Uh, this is a, spring is always an uh, interesting season in our family. Uh, we have, my wife's birthday is April 11th, and then we have Mother's Day uh, in May, and then we turn right around with the anniversary uh, May 24th, and so uh, the April, May is kind of like, that's Julie's season. Uh, it's not a, a day, it's, it's a, a spring season, you know, uh, and so when we say that, uh, you kinda, it's kind of tough because it's also tax season too, you know, <laughs> kind of tough when you're trying to buy gifts, uh, but you know, uh, when you say it's the season, what, what do you think or what is your day, usually what we have in mind it's a day where we're going to put at the center of our focus, the center of our attention, a person. We're going to consider their needs, their wants, and we're going to celebrate this person. And so uh, it may be not the norm. <laughs> Normally, you may not make it about them. Uh, it could very well be about you. That's how we normally function. And so when we think about it like that, the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. A day, a time set apart where Jesus and who he is and all that he represents takes central focus in the world. In the world. Right now, Jesus does not take central focus in the world. In fact, when God came in the flesh, in John chapter 1, it talks about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
And so the, the fact of it was is that when Jesus came bodily, there was this outright rejection of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the Lord has, re- has come, but it, he was rejected. But yet the Bible speaks. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6 to 1, Jesus quotes when he was in a gathering, something like this, a synagogue there in his hometown. In Isaiah 61, he starts quoting a prophecy and talking about the day of the Lord coming and says, look, this is being fulfilled right before your eyes. I'm going to read just a portion of what he said. He says, The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And he stopped right there. But when you read in Isaiah 61, when he was reading it, he stopped mid-sentence. He stopped where there's a comma. There's a reason why he stopped, because he wasn't going to fulfill totally the purpose of the Lord's return. Where he stopped, if you went on read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. He stopped mid-sentence because that's not what he was going to accomplish at that moment. But there is a time that he's coming back where he will take center stage, not just in spiritual realm, but in the earthly realm that we know. So what happens when the character of Jesus becomes the center of government, when it becomes the center of attention, becomes the center of judgment, what happens? Well, I got in a uh, discussion uh, online a little bit this past week uh, regarding the guy. He, he uh, works, uh, helps us with IT stuff um, from time to time, so that's how I came to know him. Uh, but I put online this statement I had heard uh, Lecrae had made. He's a Christian hip-hop uh, artist and was speaking at Yale, uh, which is interesting. And he makes this uh, declaration that if you don't have uh, justice... With forgiveness and with unity, if you don't have forgiveness and unity with this desire for justice, it leaves you with just vengeance. That for social work to happen, it requires forgiveness, unity, and justice, which is, I think, an interesting statement. So I put that on there line, and he kind of responded. He said, well, what if you have forgiveness without justice? Uh, and asked that question. And that might be a question you have dealt with. What if we've got forgiveness, but we have no justice in this world? Where do we go from there? And so the point I was bringing bringing to him is you can't have forgiveness in a world where there's not also justice in that world. In fact, you can't have the ability to forgive anyone unless there is a sense of justice, of right and wrong that will be judged. So that puts anyone who is an atheist someone in, in a difficult position. Because where does the sense of justice come from? All right. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, in the Old Testament, you're going to see it flavored in the Old Testament and into the New Testament where a day where justice will be enacted. And it's finally going to be, the scores will be settled. And this is what people who deal with unjust governments Hold on to. 
they must have this sense for them not to lash out in vengeance. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit, this nature of the day of the Lord. I'm going to bring some other scriptures to, to bear in this uh, for us to, to consider. Uh, Matthew 24, Jesus refers to this in verse 42 and 43. Watch therefore, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. And so Jesus is the one who introduces this concept of it happened suddenly. And so Peter uh, banks on that as he talks about that. This also, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. All right, And so the heavens will pass away with a roar. It's going to be a sudden, somewhat unexpected experience. Uh, we see Paul also speaking about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 4. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a travail comes upon a woman with child. And there will be no escape. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So, when we talk about the nature of the day of the Lord, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be somewhat unexpected. So it involves the coming Lord, and it will be destructive for unbelievers. Destructive for unbelievers. And so it's not necessarily something that we all long for. We had a, a few weeks ago, oh, actually a couple, two or three months ago, uh, someone break in our family's uh, cabin. We have a cabin in Zebulun that was in kind of family passed on type thing. Uh, and so it's a kind of a retreat place, if nothing else. Um, and so um, my parents told me about it. Someone had just kind of broken into the door and busted it up and uh, went in. And I wasn't terribly uh, worried. One, it wasn't all my stuff. All right, just to be honest, it was not my stuff, you know, but, but two, I also knew what stuff was there, um, so it didn't bother me, and so I asked, uh, so uh, mom, dad, did anything missing? No? <laughs> not a thing missing? <laughs> yeah, okay, it doesn't surprise me. I thought, what a bitterly disappointed thief. <laughs> you know, you go through all this trouble, you break down a door, you go in, there's, man, <laughs> Nothing to steal here, <laughs> you know, just wasted whatever time it took uh, for that. And, you know, and so mom and dad, of course, you know, repaired the door and, and, and made it better. And the only thing that was stolen was kind of a sense of security, right? Um, because the fact of the matter is there's nothing to take. Um, so when we talk about the day of the Lord coming as a thief, there's no, there's no planning. There's no, they're, they're not like, you know, July twenty. 17, you hear stuff like this, right? How many times, for those of us who've lived any amount of time, have we heard the dates come and go? You know what, uh, what I forgot, 2012 reasons the Lord's coming back in 2012, you know? Uh, and, and of course, that came and went. Uh, I remember one person started coming to church here because he had, was reading about the Mayan calendar in 2012, and so it kind of got to him uh, a little bit. And of course, that's you know, been four years since. Uh, and so there's not this date that the Lord puts out there. In fact, he, he simply says no one knows the day or the hour. It is an unexpected. God alone knows when this is going to happen. Uh, and so it is as a thief that's going to come that it's an unexpected thing. But 
there is potential to lose, all right? There was potential for me to lose something in my cabin if I had things that I valued in that cabin, things that I worked and earned for that were of great worth. If that was taken, then there would be something to, to be terrified over. And so when we talk about the day of the Lord coming and uh, systems as we know it, the world as we know it ceases to exist, it can be terrifying if that's what your life is invested in. Do you understand that? So when we talk about the day of the Lord coming and undoing the world as we know it, there's a certain aspect that if that's all my life is for, then this is the worst news imaginable that can happen. The Bible goes on to describe uh, some other, uh, using scripture to to talk about the day of the Lord. Peter talks about this in uh, the Pentecost. Quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 30, the Lord says, I will give portents of the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will be distressed on men, so they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealous wrath, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full, yea, sudden end, he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. That's right there in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 through 18. Malachi refers to it in chapter 4 verse 5 and chapter 3 verse 2, chapter 4 verse 1 and 2. All references of the day of the Lord where it talks about uh, that it's like a refiner's fire. Hold the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall be burned up, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing his wings. You shall go forth like leaping like calves from the stall. So there is with this day a certain rejoicing, but also for many a terrifying aspect. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about the undoing done by fire of the world as we know it. It says in verse 7, the heavens and the earth shall now, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly. We read verse 12. Waiting for and hastening to come the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And it likens it unto the days of flood of Noah's day. Every once in a while I drive... And I realize I'm looking out the beauty of the sky. That if I believe what the scripture says, there's a sense that all that I've known will be undone. And the only thing that matters is who God is at that moment. So as I share this, I read the scripture to us. There's probably within our mind for some of us, if not many of us, a little of, really? Nuh-uh. That's not, that's not going to happen. So, 
Peter was aware of that as he writes this. And as what we've read in 2 Peter 3, he starts bringing out some of the objections that he knows is there. Objections that he hears. Because Peter really isn't saying anything new. All these things were in the Old Testament from, from long ago. Peter's just restating them. The Bible talks about this. Jesus referred to this, not only when he taught in the synagogue, but in the temple in Matthew 24. Uh, he refers to this frequently, that there is a day when justice will prevail ultimately and finally. So, what is the objection? Well, as we keep reading here, first there's this intellectual objection. As we, we read, you notice what he says uh, Verse 3, he says, well, knowing, first of all, scoffers are going to come last day with scoffing. There are going to be people who make fun of this. This concept, really? You believe in that? You're dumb. There's this intellectual objection of making fun of it and say, well, why? Well, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, it has always been as we've known it. How could it be anything other? There's always been a sky for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's been this stuff called oxygen and there's material and stuff and there's no way that's going to happen because it's never happened before. It's, it just doesn't happen. And then, verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that by means of these the worlds that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored off for fire. And so what he's bringing out, Peter's bringing out is, look, do you understand that by the voice of God, the world has created? If God can create this world by his authority, then he can call it into account at any moment. You see, why is the creation view that God created this world so fundamental? It is the the bookend to the end of the world. The same authority that calls the world in the count is the same world that calls the world to be. And so if you don't believe that there is the authority of God, how do you explain that anything exists at all? If you look at something other than God, if you've got another belief besides God doing it, and that is what it is, is another belief, then there is no fundamental foundation for the Lord's return. And so this intellectual argument says, well, look, consider why does anything exist at all? Is it not here because God has established it and ordered it? And by that same authority, he's going to call it into account. And so a lot of times we treat the, the Bible as a buffet, like, yeah, I kind of like this concept, but I don't like that concept. And the Bible doesn't present itself where you can treat it like a buffet. It is all connected together. And so there's this intellectual uh, objection to it. But then there's a little bit more of a, a personal objection as we keep on reading. He says, look, you know, you're talking about this, and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then he goes on and describes, look, do you not know that one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years to God so what do I mean by this objection? If the day of the Lord 
is justice, then how do we deal with all the unjust things that's happened in our life? Why didn't God call it an account then? And now you're telling me there's a day that the Lord's going to call things to account? You know what? I could have think of a much more timely opportunity for God to call things into account, to keep things from happening. As I read uh, and I'm looking and just watching and reading some statistics of just human slavery, I, I was flabbergasted with this uh, simple ob- observation that in today's society, there is more human slavery that occurs presently than all of history in the 1800s. I'm like, really? And this is the development of our world. And I'm thinking, God, how does stuff like this happen? And so we, we can have it even more a general than even more personal thing when someone does some injury to us and we think, Lord, why are you waiting so long? And so it's much more personal. We don't like the fact that God didn't hold someone uh, to, uh, to the accounting of justice at some point in our life. But I'll read verse 9. Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here's the thing. Justice is not relative. There's an absolute sense. But fastness and slowness, absolutely relative. You know that with your child, right? Uh, you know, you talk to a six-year-old, and you tell them that you can't give them a present till, uh, you know, the end of summer. It's like you don't love them. I mean, there's just like, how horrifying. You're going to wait me out? That's like three months, Dad. But you know, when you're six years old, three months is a much greater portion of your life than when you're 41 or 61. So how do you think God deals with this? It's been 2,000 years, Lord, since you've come. And, you know, it's interesting, in, in Peter's day and Paul's day, they believed that the Lord was coming back in their lifetime. And I look at that and I think, well, how was 2,000 years ago, God? Surely. But when you're an eternal God, 2,000 years isn't that big of a deal but when I see why he's waiting, you, did you catch it? Why is he waiting? He says, first of all, in a thousand years is a one day to God. But why is he waiting? Why is he, why is he slow as we would count it slow? He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when I see this watching world and I see fanaticism grow to the point of evil becomes normal and people are getting beheaded raped and things happen like that continuously in society where folks say in a society it's like well that's normal and i think god how can why do you let that evil continue and it's so easy for me to be impatient with the evil of others and God's justice on the evil of others. But I become amazingly patient on my own evil. God, just bear with me. I've got some bad tendencies. I've got some bad thought patterns. God, I'm so selfish. God, just give, just give me mercy. Mercy. 
Do you not understand that the same evil that's in my own heart is the evil that grows in the worldwide? Difference of degrees, perhaps, but not certainly in kind. And so as I read this, the fact that God's allowed us to wake up and he hasn't come back, we thank God. He's giving mercy. He's giving mercy. And so the objections of the day. But then there's this other objection that we might read as we read this. Like, you know, Pastor, this, I, I love it when you talk about the, the forgiveness aspect of God. I love it when you talk about uh, the peace of God, the righteousness, that these are good things. But now you're bringing up this stuff about the day of the Lord coming and a fire. and bring, See, this is why I don't like the Christian teaching. It just seems so, I don't know, primitive. So mean. I mean, really? Heavens? We said, I like the heavens. They're pretty. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And now you're talking about those who are evil being perished. And I've got some of that in my own heart, God. But I want you to notice something. Verse 9. Who is he desiring? He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach a well-ordered perspective in their mind. Is he waiting for everyone to get their act together? (laughs) Aren't you glad we didn't have a door that says, only if you got your act together, come here? Yeah, that's what people think, you know. People think, well, I only go to church if I get my act together. Those are the folks who've got their act together. That's what people think. But that's not what the text is saying here. He's longing for repentance. What does it take to repent? It takes one that you understand you don't have your act together. God, I messed up. He's longing for those who are all messed up to realize they're all messed up. See, the fact of the matter, people come away from Christ, move away from Christ, because in their mind they think they've got it. I don't need it. That's just for the weak. And they don't realize how weak they are. The repentant are those who understand, I messed up. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need God to come and fix me. And so this is the idea. He's longing for repentance. He's desiring that. So those are the objections to the day of the Lord. But what is the effect of it? As we read this, he says, Look, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening? Did you get hastening the coming of the day of God. So the Bible says that I can wait for the day of the Lord, day of God, and I can actually hasten the day of God. I can live in such a way where the day of the Lord comes sooner. But wait a second, didn't you say that God alone knows that day? Jesus himself said that. Yes, God alone knows that day, but he also knows every future decision of his creation, and he has compensated 
in his ability and his sovereignty to know what you will do and how you will respond to this. And so from God's perspective, there is a day set known from before the foundation of the world. But from our perspective, uh, from the human perspective, there is an ability where God has allowed us to be a part of this work and is done in response of God's kingdom coming in our life and through our life to this world. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to all people groups, then the end will come. Listen, I'm going to share with you that as I read Matthew 24, when I read this in 2 Peter chapter 3, one of the reasons why we as a church have adopted some county with a funny name in East Asia that some of us will never see is because we want to see the kingdom of God coming, not just in Puga County, not just in our life, but we see the kingdom of God coming in the world. And as we take this commission that Jesus seriously has given to us, it allows and hastens the day of the Lord coming. So the coming kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom is done with our mouth, but done by our life. As you see in Second Peter chapter 3, where it talks about our lives, how we live. Are we allowing, we praying, God, your kingdom come. Is it coming in our heart? What's ruling our life? Jesus? Our convenience? Ourselves? So, what sort ought we be? Lives of holiness? And godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So what, what do we tend to live for today? What does is, what is the people around us live for? Job, they live for family, they live for reputation, honor, social status. Um, they like their pretty car and they want to keep it shined up, their boat. Uh, their, their second, third, whatever house, uh, or maybe for a, a beautiful woman by their side, or a man of status uh, next to them. You know, when you retire, what do you live for? What do you accumulate? What are the hobbies that we have? What's the records that we get? And it's like the Bible is describing a time when all these things we've got piled up in our hands. The honors, the reputation, the, the money, and it's just in our hands. And it's like the Bible describes the day of the Lord coming like a huge, great gust of wind that it blows it right out of our hands. Wait, what? what where did it all go? And all that remains is God. And it's just you and Him. And if your life's spent, for comfort and convenience, it's blown away totally. This is for bank account status, it's gone. If anything we've seen in history, it hasn't even taken the day of the Lord. It, it doesn't require just the day of the Lord for us to understand some things. And we have 9 11. And we see, man, life isn't about some of the stuff that we've been caught up in. The Great Depression and people are jumping out of windows because they realize my life isn't about this stuff and, and this stuff is destroyed and what do I live for? I'm going to jump out of the window. It doesn't even take the day of the Lord for us to understand some of these things. 
But there is going to be a day of the Lord where he comes. And the only thing that keeps up from coming is God's patience, his mercy, his longing for people of Nosu and other people groups to come, hear the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus, and respond to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. So what is the effect? What sort of person ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Later on this afternoon, I'm supposed to do, be a part of a, a black belt graduation. Molly and I have been doing that. And it's a third degree black belt graduation. So we've been doing this six years. It's crazy. And we're going to sit there. And there's a lot of honor this community gives on stuff like this. A lot of work involved in it. But you know what? Day of the Lord comes. <laughs> a belt can be black for another reason. It's gone. The honor that comes with it. All that honor is is just something I can give back to God. What role do honors play in your life? You understand if it's other than something you give glory to God for, it's going to be utterly removed from you. Utterly. So what role do honors have in your life? What is it you're working for? The effect of this is to bring us back to Jesus Christ. And all that we need to be reminded is just to see evil in our day. To realize God's going to make right the wrongs. I remember I shared this story some time ago. Fifth grade, I learned how to manipulate girls. And I learned how girls can manipulate guys in fifth grade. And I remember there was a girl. We, uh, back then, we went with one another, which meant absolutely nothing. Just some way of describing, oh, we're different. But I decided I didn't want to go with her anymore. And so she didn't like that. So she then decided, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to make up stuff about him. And so she made up some lies about me and thought, what? What is this? You can't do that. She did. And then she uh, was going to tell her, her friend in seventh grade who uh, lived nearby, and uh, this guy was going to come on the bus. I had to ride the bus back then, all right? Um, it was not a fun experience. And so the seventh grader was going to get on the bus, and he was going to beat me up. I'm like, how am I going to fight a seventh grader, you know? I'd seen him get on the bus before with a friend of mine. So I knew he would do it because he did it before. So I tell my dad about it. Actually, he asked me because I was, I was upset, worried. I couldn't hide it. So his solution was, well, let, let me get the boxing gloves. I'm going to teach you how to fight. <laughs> I don't think he was very optimistic after working with me. 
Because um, I, I got on the bus and I was over here at Vina Wilburn and I was riding and got over New Hope and uh, got to the corner. We called it the corner where the herd got on, that's what we called it. But before I did that, I saw it. That car looks familiar. That's my dad. He's right there, following along right behind the bus. I didn't tell soul. <laughs> you don't, you know, that, you lose some points if you do that, you know. But my confidence changed. I was like, it's all, it's all going to be okay. Even if the seventh grader gets on the bus, there's one who's in authority. And he's going to come in. He's going to invade in school world and get on school bus just like evil is threatening to get on the bus. Dad's going to get on the bus too. When we read about the Lord's return, there's no question evil has gotten on the bus with us. And Jesus has gotten on the bus once. And he said, look, I'm coming. And I'm going to proclaim the favor of the Lord. But I want you to know, I'm going to get on the bus again. And when that time comes, it's to settle scores. There's a day of vengeance. But I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until everyone has ample opportunity to get on with me. And all that it takes is repentance. Repentance. And the powers that be will be utterly reversed. I assure you, at that time, no one's going to care one bit about what someone's wearing on some red carpet somewhere. And no one's really going to care what some senator says or what some presidential nominee will say or what some political power would say. No one's going to care at that moment what Supreme Court justice would say. And no one's going to care what popular group is going to say what at that time because the popularity has been totally reversed. And those who live by faith are just. Who see and long and look forward to that day. And so what does that mean for us? One, we live with the end in mind. We live with the end in mind. We are long-sighted. And we look for the final authority. And we look for the final authority and we, we go ahead and, and jump ahead and say, God, I'm not going to wait for that day when you come on the bus. I'm going to invite you on my bus now. And so Jesus taught us to pray. Pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever.
You know what Jesus was teaching us to pray? Skip on ahead. Look at the end. Live with it in view. Make it your prayer today. Make it your submission today. Let's do that.